0: Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Where are you? Well,
1: it not surprise you to know that I'm at the Giro d'Italia. I know that. I mean, where are you? Oh, ho lasciato Torino e ora sono circondato da Rasaie. Risaie. <laughs> Perché è chi <clears throat> che l'organizzazione della corsa ha deciso che dovremo riunirci tutti oggi.
0: an overly ambitious attempt to never stray far fairly from the daily goings-on of this year's Giro d'Italia, Ned Bolting and I will be speaking every morning to recap the goings-on of the day before. I'm David Miller, and I'll be hosting this show from the comfort of my home in Girona. And I'm Ned Bolting, and I'm slightly overreaching with my Italian skills. I know that you very much like watching young men time trial on their time trial bikes. So did you enjoy watching the time trial, Ned? Yeah, I did, David. Did you watch it? I did. I did. I, 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 I actually, it was a revelation for me yesterday because my oldest son, Archibald, who you just saw, um, before we started this, he decided he really wanted to watch it with me. And this is, this has kind of been creeping in the last few times I've watched bike races because in the past I didn't watch much bike racing at home because they just forced me to turn it off. Um, But lately, Archibald's wanted to come at Flanders. He came and sat next to me. But, but yesterday, he really was excited and it was, it was lovely because, um, we sat there and we watched it for about half an hour or 40 minutes and the amount of questions he had. And it's, it's amazing how you have to watch it, um, differently when you're with a, when you're with a a young child. I mean, he's nine. So were you doing,
1: were you doing quite a lot of explaining from the very basics kind of completely? Wow. It was kind of
0: like the, commentary but um children's commentary yeah it's really cool and so talking about the bikes and trying to kind of explain the speed even having to explain to him why they go close to the barriers mm. was something that he's like why are they so close to the barriers i said to make it shorter and he's like "Why well, i don't understand and so i was having to explain to him why that makes it shorter and then looking at the bikes and then the out because it was so fast yesterday i mean what and it was 57 winning average, I think it was. And I, think, I going, think
1: it might have been 58, just, just over 58. Just got 58. Wow. I think so.
0: I think so, yeah. It might have be been 57 when it crossed the line, then went up. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. Um, so it was mega fast, which was great, because that's the sort of speed, his max speed he's ever hit on a bike would be probably 51 or 52. Mm. And so he could really relate to that. And then actually probably one of the, the bits where I had the most fun was um, the flags, because then seeing all the flags pop up and trying to guess the countries. And so it turned into a geography lesson as well. So that it was, was just brilliant. a completely lovely new way of watching a bike race. And, and, and again, it's, it's like when you go for a, a, a ride that you've done a, a thousand times around your house and you do it with somebody who's there for the first time and you see everything with new eyes and fresh eyes. And it was like that. So I had a, I had a great time watching the time trial yesterday. Not too clinical in the sense that I wasn't able to pay too much attention to the actual what was going on, but it was just fun. And, uh, so yeah, so maybe we should do that from now on just to ease your pain of watching time trials. Ned is just bring a kid in. So (laughs) (laughs) or maybe I just have to act more like a kid, but how was it for you?
1: I'll answer that in a second, but you've just reminded me. I always used to think when I was a football reporter, you know, reporting in the tunnel at Champions League matches and World Cup finals and things, I always used to think that the great trick, the innovation that broadcasters should introduce, would be to sack off people like me and have a seven-year-old touchline reporter. (laughs) I just thought it'd be great, you know. So you know, met with a kind of beast like Sir Alex Ferguson in the in the tunnel. You know, how beastly could he be to a seven-year-old? You know, who asked him, so Sir Alex, is your position under pressure? You <laughs> couldn't be nasty to them. Maybe. Um, I think it's a great idea. Um, uh, uh, no, so yesterday I loved, I mean, you know I'm an enthusiast. And, um, yes, and I know I'm you st- are. And I'm still excited. I messaged you this morning, so I'm still excited. Um... <laughs> But it's not often the time trial leaves me a bit cold. But there was something about yesterday's time trial that I thought was really refreshing. I don't know what it was. I, I guess it was there were a few riders who did really surprising things. You know, the, the, <coughs> Tobias Foss, who um, the 23 year old Norwegian, um, who we all knew could go pretty well, didn't go pretty well. He absolutely blasted the course. Um, But uh, if that was sort of semi-expected, I don't think anyone knew that Eduardo Affini, his Italian teammate, uh, who is a good time trialist, but I I use the word good rather than outstanding, um, would do the ride that he did. And he took a huge chunk of time out of Foss and looked for all the world like he might be a genuine threat to Filippo Ganna. I mean, the, the lead... The lead changed hands so many times. It, uh, even from the first two riders who went off, Filippo Tagliani from Androni Giocattoli was caught over 8.6 kilometres by his minute man, who is um, David Decker, also from Jumbo Visma, who set the obviously then set the best time, and he was caught on the line and overtaken, oh, which is really kind of exciting to watch. Um, David Decker's a, a, a kind of... You know, it's going to be really good to see what he does today, actually, and what he does throughout the, the first three weeks. You, you must have raced
0: a lot with his dad, I suspect. Eric. Yeah. Eric. Eric Decker. Yeah, I did. It was, we were just um, crossed over generations, so he'd have been coming to his peak. He was, a really, he was an interesting rider, Eric, because when I turned pro late 90s, he was rubber bank, and he was very much that kind of kamikaze breakaway rider. He would often end up in those long moves. And then actually, as his career progressed, it, he actually started to win some really good races and, and really changed his style into more of a, a finale racer. But he was a lovely guy. I can, I can always, I've got this vivid picture of him sitting on the back of the Peloton. He was one of those riders. He was off the front or he was right at the back. Um, but he was, he was a real stalwart of that, that Dutch. Kind of generation of riders in the late '90s, early 2000s. Christ, that's 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 nuts. Yeah, I've, I'm at that point now where all the guys I race with, their sons is going to start coming through. Actually, yeah. and that was another thing I was thinking about yesterday. Ned was when I was watching, I was thinking I, I come from a non cycling background, as you know. So I never even watched bike race until I was a teenager and didn't really know much about it. And self-taught and just through passion and the excitement you still wake up to every day, Ned. Um, so far. And- it's only stage two, but so far. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there with Archibald and explaining it all to him. And you can see how children kind of, it often happens that, that children, it's their parents that did it before because it's just such a... It, and I, especially, I think, especially with fathers and sons, I mean, you, you know this with football as well. But we were sitting there and I was showing the race and Dan Martin came on and he knows Dan. And then we were talking about Nibali and I was explaining Nibali and he's on Trek, Segafredo, and I explained what the team was. And I was like, oh, you know Trek, you've got a cap upstairs. Remember Ryder? And he's like, yeah. I was like, Ryder won the Giro d'Italia. And then we were talking about something. else, and Taylor Teo, mentioned Teo won it last year, who he knows as well. I think this is just so weird Is you've grown up with Giro winners that are dad's daddy's friends and, and then just, it, I know all about it and explaining it. So it just, it's almost like osmosis just going into him all the time uh, in that the is background. so cool. But well, he exhausting. just thinks these
1: are just grown-ups that your dad knows. Just grown-ups. Uh, yeah, just come around the house sometimes. And, and now he's beginning to join the dots about what they're actually, yeah. what they've accomplished in their careers and who they've, what, what yeah, yeah.
0: it's, it's mega. And it was like, and it really kind of hit home to me as well, how privileged, the privilege that is. And just yeah. in a, in a really nice way that you kind of bump into and he, so there's no, and I guess, yeah, you're right. He joins the dots. They're just daddy's friends. Then there's always, then he's seeing on TV this huge race and all these things it's like they won that and it's like so So it'll be really weird for him I think in the next few years just to kind of and, and then there's the added fact that he's a huge Ineos fan because Auntie Francis used to run that team so, so at the moment Ineos comes in it's um it's like Ineos which is pretty funny really but, it's um, quite odd yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan of fracking yeah Brilliant. Um, Plastic, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah. So I mean, all of that was really nice, and but, but yeah, and I think so. What was and if I look at the results now, Ned, what is interesting? I think, especially in a time trial like this, and going from Decker to Afeni Foss, and even Van Emden in six. Jumbo yeah. Visma. Mm. Kind of all over that top ten. De mm. quickstep Quick three riders as well in the top ten. Um, Ineos Ineos got Moscone
1: and Ghana, right? Both in the top ten, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah just so it's, it's that's three teams who have taken up almost all the places. There's only two two teams that that, that scraped in there, Quebeca and Israel Startup. Quebeca with Valshai and Brandel for for Israel Startup. And, yeah. and you know, watch that time trial yesterday when it's such a huge, a fast one. You can see how those teams that are specialists that have all the tech and you, the tech just looks amazing. Now everyone looks so good. The speed suits are amazing. The bike's slick. The position's awesome. And it really does shine through because you can, you know that Ineos Grenadier has put a lot of effort in. We know Yumbo Visma do. We know Duke Kearney Quickstep. And it's just, it's there on, on paper in front of us that, that it goes to show that that work pays off.
1: Do you know what's quite funny? Um, The day before a time trial, if you do the job that I do, and as I explained yesterday, I'm kind of employed by the race itself. Um, I am actually, myself and, my, and Matt Stevens, are, are consulted by the race as to who you should follow. Because on a time trial, you can't, you I know, know you, yeah. haven't got, you haven't got enough motorbikes to follow absolutely everybody. So you have to go through the start list and kind of go, well, who's worth following? And so um the riders who ultimately you saw uh, were because we, kind of flagged them up to to the, to the italian television director said probably he's worth following so apologies if there was a rider you really wanted to see but didn't see that's that's <laughs> awful but when, that's <laughs> when, when we were walking away um i kind of I, I i said um do you know what i don't think and i think i'm right saying i don't think we saw a single bardiani rider <laughs> oh, That's <laughs> and, true. And, and, and literally there wasn't one I mean, uh, oh. obviously, I watched the whole thing from start to finish because I was commentating without break. Um, oh, and you for, imagine for an Italian, sponsors. can you imagine that? It's their biggest gig of the year and it would have got a big no. TV audience judging by the sides of the crowds out in Turin yesterday. Were they, were they wild carded? They, they were, they were wild carded. Yeah. So Alpes and mm. Fenix, the way it works is Alpes and Fenix qualify, uh, by dint of being the, uh, leading continental a uh, pro continental team pro tour team or whatever it 's called um uh, Bardiani got the one of the three wild cards aolo cometa got the second one as we discussed they 're quite a big deal. In Italy uh, now. Oh, um, sorry, we didn't see them either. Not one rider of theirs was featured yesterday. And yep. um, the other, the other wild card went to Vini Zabu, but they had to—they voluntarily withdrew after a couple of their riders have tested positive this year and uh, have been suspended. So they withdrew, mm. and that opened the door for Gianni Savio then to bring Androni Giocattoli, who were always at the Giro and who were deeply snubbed for not having received a wild card in the first place.
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting actually on that one. Um, and probably, I, I, I don't think the, the race director can have any influence on that. But there's quotes from um, Mauro Venni, who's the director of, uh, of the Giro, saying he'd have preferred not to have wild cards here at the race because there's too many teams. And so there's almost that sort of sense of he's already putting that out there and he'll have close relationships with the TV. He's almost just angry It's like because there's too many teams. But that's a UCI Kind of have enforced that, so it's it's interesting because he's obviously not happy. He thinks there's too many teams at the race, and so he's almost just kind of making a statement. Not that he's got the power to do that, but you never know. He's not encouraging the TV. That's for uh, sure. In the past, uh, yeah, it, that's really in interesting. Past, I didn't, didn't read yeah. those
1: quotes. That's that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's um yeah. So that that could have a slight impact because that just sends that vibe around that the the wildcard teams aren't really that welcome. And whereas in the past they'd get feted and kind of made a big deal of those smaller Italian teams I think in the modern sport it's like no we don't need that here so anyway interesting Ew.
1: yeah well one solution yeah. is just don't, don't show them on the telly it'd be interesting how they manage yeah, that today you will lose your we'll sponsors it's yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway so j- just to complete my little <laughs> thought about David <laughs> Decker Um, David is what 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 an amazing year he's had because this is his debut as a a world tour pro so he's kind of he's only he's 23 I think he's turned pro this year and he was sent straight to the UAE tour which is a world tour race think of it what you will it's nonetheless a world tour race and it's a really strong peloton actually always um, out in Dubai and Abu Dhabi stage one he got in the move in in a brutal kind of crosswinds day where it all blew apart and he got in a kind of 18 man group that got away and stayed away right to the very end, and contained Mathieu Vanderpool, who duly won the stage. Uh, David Decker finished uh, in a strong second place in that selective group sprint, and then overnight, uh, Mathieu van der Poel's team had a COVID positive amongst their, their entourage, and so they had to leave the race overnight, and that meant that David Decker was in the leader's jersey the next day on a World Tour race, on his, on his second day of, of uh, professional bike racing. But He's a he's a phenomenally um, gifted rider, and I think he's going to be the lead out man for Dylan Grunewagen, uh today. Uh, so that's that's Ooh. that's one to watch. That's going to be really good. Now, um, yeah. you sent me uh, you sent me a little suggested kind of yeah. running order, didn't well, you? I was
0: going to talk about Ned um, just a little bit, of reminder to our listeners the concept of our, our show and the fact that oh, right. we're Can getting you up. You remind and... me as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's still going to make it up now as it go along. Yeah. Uh, no, we, we had we spoke a, a couple of weeks, a, a couple of weeks ago because we hadn't done Never Strays Far in since December.
1: Yeah. And we need to I've reasoning. been saying, I've and, been saying we hadn't done it for four months. So I actually checked and we hadn't done it for
0: five months. There you go. Nearly half a year. <laughs> oh, nearly That's half a, a year. That's a regularity. So we thought in you know, a classic fashion, we'd flip the other side of the coin and do it every day for three weeks or over three and a half weeks. <laughs> Just because we're stupid, and so that means we're we're on the phone to each other. Hence the croaky voice bit at like six forty-five most mornings to do this and try and get it out. And yeah. the point being is that we know from working on bike race and you're there often. A lot of the information comes in overnight, and you get a little bit of time to digest everything. And we thought it would be really cool for for us to do catch ups the morning after, and then for people to be able to listen to it. Uh, on their way to work or breakfast to kind of get that that classic morning show update of what happened the day before and so it's this is sponsored by chapter three and the road book and we'll go more into them as the race goes on but actually it's more about ned and i just catching up and talking about bike racing every morning and and trying to keep this up and it's going to be a challenge but i think we're up for it ned
1: so, I, I'm, I'm not being paid by the roadbook, uh, for this. Are you, are you being paid a lot of money by chapter three to
0: do this, David? Uh, it, it's Hans. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the only reason I'm getting up. I'm getting Spon-
1: up. I, like I like the word
0: "sponsored" in this context. we're sponsoring It's a conceptual. It's a conceptual sponsorship. Isn't it? It's just a right for us to talk about the other things we do at some point when yeah, we, um, we will when we find the time. Of, yeah, but we'll it's true. It's like what that old model saying: "I don't get out of bed for for less than what ten thousand dollars a day, or something, or a yeah. dollars It's like we get out of bed for free.
1: Yes. <laughs> <It's... laughs> that's what we do for the yeah. love of
0: it for the no, love like, of the I sport like the fact that
1: I, like, I, I like i like the way you've inter- reminded me of the concept of this because i was beginning to wonder um but the, the reason that we, there's a couple of reasons why we're doing it in the morning as you said a big feature of the itv tour de france podcast is our sheer um uh exhaustion Always, and and the fact that we just want to get, we just want to get away, get on the road. So there's always mm. in the ITV podcast that we record, kind of maybe an hour after the end of the race, with uh, you know faced with a two and a half, three hour drive ahead of us. There's always those bits in the podcast where someone will say, "So who's in the who won the king of the who's in the king of the mountains?" jersey? Uh, yeah. and we'll all, and none of us will know, and we'll all look. And at errors
0: running around trying to get paper yeah, printed, printed out, out we'll results. Go, I uh, don't know,
1: it doesn't really matter, does it? I don't yeah. know. And we are kind of so we'll try, we'll try and be a bit more, um, kind of... It's, it's a fresh concept, but, actually having information. And also, you like the idea of it being like a, a, um, a morning radio show. Like a morning radio show. show. Good, Good morning, morning. I David of, and was that, morning? Yeah. With a yeah, morning we could cup do, of coffee. Maybe, maybe we could have a little drive, you know, like travel report section. Like, well, I'd love it to yeah. get travel jam, I mean, yeah.
0: I, I reckon we'll get more confident time goes on. We'll be dropping in interviews... Calling up Ryder late at night over in Canada, you know, from our early morning. Uh, Probably we shouldn't do that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. No, not not that one. But yeah, I mean, um, we'll see.
1: I, I, uh, oh, I should not should do that. Interested. Should no, I should do. Tra- I should. I think I should do traffic updates from I think whichever city I'm I'm in. Right. So in, yeah. I'm in Novara today, and I could go. You know, there are three uh, three kilometers of slow moving traffic on the uh, southbound uh, dual carriageway uh, between Turin <laughs> and Milan. Affect you know like that. <laughs> like that will have to be slightly better than that.
0: Yeah. will yeah. have to have a little really sh-
1: get Perry to make us a little kind of drive time jingle
0: because like uh, uh, it is nice, it's a breakfast Chris. show anyway. Maybe yeah. a bit of music. Yeah, we got music. Um, So yeah, so that's the concept of that. Um, Now, regards today's show, I was was wondering about talking a bit through what doing a prologue is like. Yes, please. I think because um, it's such a weird one. Uh, It's the shortest event, essentially, and you can correct me these because these days you've got the latest info. A prologue is any event under nine kilometers. It
1: wasn't a a prologue yesterday.
0: No, so it's so it's eight point five k, so it's under eight ks. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that's what I mean. So yeah. yesterday, it, it, but for riders, you basically consider anything under ten to be a prologue, but okay. actually, officially, officially, I think in the UCI rules, it's anything under eight kilometers. Okay, which is just one of those silly cycling rules. You would yeah. think it'd be single digits would make it simpler. Yeah. Well,
1: do, um, you but, maybe you should explain, uh, David, why that's even a thing. I mean, why why do you differentiate between a short time trial and a prologue?
0: Yeah, again, well, okay, the effort. I mean. So anything, it's the shortest event you do as a professional cyclist. You don't do anything on it. In road cycling and road racing, it's, it is a single digit race um, when it comes to kilometers. And that means that it's the most intense effort you do. Um, which is kind of weird because most of the time, obviously, as we know, we're trained for, for ultra endurance effectively, uh, as we've seen, three-week Grand Tours, 250-plus kilometre one-day races. Um, so it's a really kind of strange one to then drop in these super intense, what the equivalent to kind of four-minute mile events, where you've just got a. it's a middle-distance kind of sprint, really. Uh, and so it does mean that there's very few riders in the peloton who are suited to it. Uh, and they're normally – and they're called a prologue because they're always the first stage uh, of – stage races so could be a, a short could even be a three or four day stage race would have a prologue or a grand tour like yesterday even though yesterday officially was a time trial and it was prologue to the race starting and i think they were actually originally created as just a set piece uh and even in the old days you'd have the previous year's winner wearing the leader's jersey um in that first in the prologue so it was almost like a kind of it, it started off where it left off the year before and so, and I think it was in the late seventies, eighties. I mean, people can correct me on this, that they kind of brought them in. And, and there was in the late nineties, they were a real staple of the sport. You'd go in and almost every grand tour would have a prologue to kick it off. And that's where the previous year's winner would be there and all their pomp in the leaders jerseys that they'd, that they'd worn the finish the, the year before. And, and it set the wheels in motion for what was ahead.
1: I've been doing really. some re- re- research into um, what happened in 1989. Um, David, and, and what a feature of yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, in, in the racing calendar, almost every stage race had a prologue, and what was what was really noticeable back then is that the prologs were crazy short. They mm. were like they were like 1.5 or two kilometres long, yeah. quite often, um, which is a whole different ball. I mean, that's a, there's a big difference I, I would imagine between doing that and doing 8.6 kilometres, which was yesterday. That's a, That moves it up again or down again or something.
0: Yeah, yeah there is. Because, I mean, that's when actually sprinters would stand a legitimate chance. Uh, big sprinters like, back in the day, Cipollini, or these days, I mean, Cav at his best could do any prologue really well, but under 4Ks, he'd be in his own, he'd just be, be exceptional. And got guys like Brett Lancaster who won a prologue at the Giro d'Italia where it was just an out and back kilometre, I think, dead straight. Or it might have even just been out and not come back. Um, but they... Those were really special events. And I think over time they realized, and they were experiments. You see a lot in professional cycling where things come and go. It was quite cyclical. So there was a period where you had those very short ones. And as you say, in the late 80s, early 90s, they were kind of the norm. And that's when you had riders, riders like Vyakislav Ekimov, um, who was an ex-Russian pursuiter. You had Thierry Marie, who was a a French pursuiter ex, who who were like the champions of that event. And and it was almost within the sport, you'd have pros that build careers around prologues. And to be perf- perfectly frank, that's what gave Chris Bourbon his accelerated start in the sport. He came in and saw that from afar. So when he turned pro in 93, 94, um, he came into this the kind of almost the, the height of prologues within Grand Tours. And they're around four kilometres, five kilometres, which was what he was exceptional at. He was Olympic champion. And he just ripped a hole in the sport and just changed the whole game. And I think it was once it started to get that specialised is when organisers start, as usual, usually go, OK, well, that's getting too formulaic. Okay. <laughs> let's uh now change it up again but that was really the mid 90s was when it was at its peak and that's where chris borgman i think revolutionized the sport because he saw it and came in and and brought in all this crazy equipment and position and specific training and they were like hang on that's not fair
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's so chris isn't it to identify uh, ah there's an opportunity there and if i approach it like this i can exploit it to my advantage and that's exactly what he did and uh, you know just saw it saw the thing that other people couldn't see he'd been uh, Um, playing our playing our sorry playing our gladiator game. I think we're going to come on to that, aren't we? Our gladiator Possibly game. Possibly will, yes. Chris, Chris, would be, Chris would be a good one to think about, you know, what kind of gladiator he'd be. Maybe one that hasn't yet been invented. Chris would have to, because I, yeah. I think Chris would come into the arena armed with a very specific and hitherto unseen weapon, you know, yeah, that, or, that, that or no that. one
0: has... Thought about before. You know what Chris would be doing? Because you know they're allowed to choose their weapons as they go out often, I think, in the old, where you just have all the weapons. He'd just be biding his time at the back of the queue, seeing what everyone else was taking. Then just like, then he'd have like, he'd have hidden some tools in his back. That Peter Keene had designed for him. Yeah. And he'd be making, he'd be then knocking together like MacGyver a special yeah. weapon that could yeah. conquer everybody else's weapons. <laughs> so come out all nonchalantly and then just pull out this like lightsaber. Even just
1: with his big hammer would be powerless, <laughs> powerless the, against the Chris.
0: Cause to be to be honest, that's how I got my foot up in the sport as well. Because when I came in in <clears throat> 97, it was still the year I went, when time trialing wasn't necessarily taken seriously. Um, and I came from the British culture and like Chris and where even the majority of British club time trialers took it more serious than a professional when it came to their equipment, and their position, and their training, because it's such a, it's such a part of the British sport. I mean, probably a little less now because the way the sports changed so much in the UK, but in the, in the late 20th century, let's say in most of the 20th century, time trialing was the, the sport of the, the, the British, um, culture. And so we had this huge head start in it and it was accepted so when i came in i put more care into my bikes i had i put more care into my training my equipment and i had an instant advantage and i saw that as a gaping hole in an opportunity for me especially as i was so young i was 1920 and it was doing those shorter events i could beat the, the the big guys and also doping was pretty rife and i guess a bit like chris i saw an opportunity there in the time trials you could beat the best um the best, the best who are doping clean uh, with those kind of with those performance uh, advantages of equipment and training and and specific dedication to it, preparation of the race itself and reconnaissance. And when I was watching the race yesterday and just looking at it and again with Archie and looking at the bikes and just looking at how beautiful it all is now, how professional the bikes just look amazing i'd have loved to have ridden one of those even in the years since i've stopped they've just advanced so much the speed suits everything looks so slick the helmets the positions everybody's positions are just next level and actually i thought thank god i'm not turning pro now because i built the foundations of my career were were built on having probably five years six years of just being better than everyone else in preparation and equipment and and uh, positioning training the actual kind of the way I treated the race, whereas now you go in and it's it's a level playing field, which makes it all the more impressive. I think when you see someone like Ghana just crushing people, because and we're seeing that more and more in the sports that the the playing field's got level, and then all of a sudden you're getting these outliers that get the opportunity to come out again. But it's um so yeah, so that's that I find really fascinating. First bit, it's um,
1: Ghana. Before we leave the time trial alone completely, we pro- probably need to move on and have a little think about. Well, there's one rider in particular we need to discuss. Um, but, but, oh, by the way, Paddy Bevin was a bit disappointing yesterday. Oh, sorry, Ned. I think he th- I think he was 36th. I didn't see that one coming. Paddy, my, bet- paddy. my
0: Betty old shout was kind of live for a oh, while. I, yeah. I, I was, was, I was going to message you. I was going to shout to a, a capital letter Betty or to you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. It was all well, right. Well, I didn't he? know. He's, he's in the mix. Yeah. He's, did, um... yeah. Anyway. Cause um, I saw it wasn't so Win, win one, lose one. Um, uh, what was I going to say? What was I going to say? What was I going to uh, say? you're going to talk about other riders. or something about Ghana and, yes, Ghana, we... Ghana. Um, yeah. he is, I, I, I delved into the stats before the race got underway yesterday doing my prep and, um, I noted that until his, his, um, two time trials this year that he didn't win, that kind of allowed for this, you know, spurious doubt to creep in as to whether or not Filippo Ganna would win yesterday. Um, so that was Romandi <laughs> and yeah. Terreno Adriatico, where he finished sixth or seventh or something. Prior to that, he had been on an eight time trial winning streak. Yeah, right. spanning amazing. spanning twenty twenty, the world championships, all the stage wins at the Giro d'Italia, plus the UAE Tour, which he won at the beginning of this year, and I thought, whoa, that's the that must be the most winningest streak of all time for for specialist time trialists. And I thought, well, who could possibly have bettered that? So I looked back and thought, well, it's got to be Cancellara, hasn't it? If it's if it's anyone, it's mm-hmm. Cancellara. I look back, Cancellara never strung more than two. Together, which surprised <laughs> me. I mean, he did that often, <laughs> probably yeah. did about 20 sort of doubles. Mm. Um, and then I thought, well, okay, it's not Cancellara. What about Rowan Dennis? Um, so I looked up Rowan Dennis and he had that, let me just get it absolutely right. Rowan Dennis done better than Cancellara in terms of the winning streak, but he too was, uh, he did four in 2018. And then I thought, well, mm. I mean, so Ganner's <clears> smashed this, no one's come close, but I better check what Tony Martin did right? So it looks like Tony's career, just track back down through the results. 10 in a row.
0: He did 10 in a
1: row, Tony. He did 10 in a row. What year was was that? It started, I think, around about the world championships in 2012 and continued into 2013, where he won all the early season um, individual time trials, plus I think two individual time trials at the Tour de France in 2013. He did 10 victories in a row. So that's one record that Filippo Ganna has yet to, has yet to better from Tony Martin.
0: Yeah, softer to Tony. What a but, legend! I mean,
1: but ganner looks just—he's—he's. He's, uh, I mean, I never thought I'd say this about a time trialist. He just looks extraordinary,
0: doesn't he? Just well, that, that was one of the things as well. I was going to message you. He actually looks fast, like the and it's good camera work and everything. But the speed he was going around those corners at, and they're big av- avenues, boulevards, and it was like, oh God, and it was like if it's looking fast. It, him and I and that was the thing that kind of took when I was watching it, and kind of took my breath away a bit as well and I was just going back to that level playing field, everyone having all the equipment and it looking great and then you see he's that big he's that strong you can go that's on the far on the flat on a straight line but then you watch from corner and you realize he's also brilliant at technically and you think where do you beat him I mean yeah. you'd have to just it's 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 really going to be really hard for this generation to beat him on on these flatter courses because he's he's just a machine. He's got every single, and that goes to show how how these days you need to have that full arsenal of weaponry, as we're in the gladiatorial sort of parlance, um, because he's got the engine from the, but he's also got all those technical skills, the equipment, he's got everything's just tick 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 tick, and it's um yeah so it's it, and it's not boring to watch. It, no, It, it is amazing boring to watch. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah. So the text message that you sent me that did land
1: was a five letter <laughs> capitalized text message that spelt out Remco.
0: Remco. Remco. Oh, I, and I was actually, that's another one. I was explaining to Archie what had happened to him and the crash uh, eight months ago. And this is his first race back. And then he was super young and that we've never seen anything like him. And, and he rolled off and, and it was about halfway through the time trial because obviously Ghana was his minute man chasing him so you were getting kind of both of their their shots and I had this feeling about in the second half when I saw Remco and I was like he looks like he's getting faster he looked like just he just looked stronger on the bike as the as the race went on which was and actually Ghana looked like he was tiring a bit physically they're still going ripping obviously and then I thought and I think it was just then uh, pretty soon after that is when I messaged you Remco because I was like oh god this is insane that you can do that after having a huge crash come back eight months later first race back and then do that on a course like that which is a pure speed when you have not been doing any racing and just been on training camps and altitude training camps to come and stomp a time trial like that out and look as good as he was it was it was great i mean i was just kind of it was, it was just so exciting I was like, this is going to be such a great race. But it was, I, and yeah, it was, it was just, it's lovely to see when you see a rider actually pulling it back together. And, and you could probably imagine, and I think I read afterwards that he had tears in his eyes kind of just before the start that he was there doing it. And you think, God, that's, it just felt really happy for him. And I think it's, I felt really happy for us as well. Cause it's going to be a great race.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will. When it? it will. I did decide um what Remco would be as a gladiator. Oh, um, you did. I I think he'd be the Hoplomachus, right? There is a type of gladiator. Um, The Hoplomachus is derived from the Greek. I've taken this from the internet. Um, The Hoplomachus is derived from the Greek for armed fighter. The Hoplomachus wore quilted trouser-like leg wrappings, a loincloth, a belt, a pair of long shin guards or greaves, an arm guard known as a manica on the sword arm, and a brimmed helmet that could be adorned with a plume of feathers on top and a single feather on each side. He was equipped with a gladius and a very small round shield. He also carried a spear, which the gladiator would have to cast before closing for hand-to-hand combat, because Remco can do that as well. Basically what I'm saying is, Remco would just beat you all ends up in every possible setting and that's the point isn't it he's the hoplomatus yes, of the gladiatorial exactly. uh, arena um, and, uh, uh, he'd just
0: be he'd just be strolling nonchalantly around the outer edge just smiling waiting well, for just everyone. Sm- smiling. smiling just yeah. there just yeah. like, patting Roglic on the head as he sat there peeling his orange yeah watching Alaphilippe windmilling around Ghana yeah. just standing in the middle just beating people off one by one yeah the and hammer thing wouldn't just, bother him
1: he'd, he'd walk up mm. to Ghana and say hey Filippo that hammer you've got behind your back hand it oh. over mate <laughs> you
0: really want to do hammer? this
1: and Ganner would just be disarmed. He'd just say, yeah, okay, Remco, I'll just put the hammer down. Yeah. <laughs> put, I'll just put the I'll just down. Put it down. I'll just put it down because you're, you're Remco. And then, um, you know. Uh, brilliant. It oh, that's fine, isn't it, Ned? We got no, it's not. no, it's not. I've got to about, I talk to you about today, David, because it's a breakfast show, and I want to talk to you oh, about course, what's going to yeah. happen What's going to happen today. So today we've got a sprinty stage. It's 179 kilometres from Stupinigi. Stupinigi Stupinigi. Stupinigi. is on the, is on the outskirts of um, a little suburb outside Turin called Nicolino, and I, st- I spent three nights in August last year in Nicolino. I was really excited because I was moving between Stradibianche and Milano-Torino, commentating for the Italians, and they said, you going to spend three nights in nicolino and doesn't nicolino sound like a beautiful place it that turns sounds out, amazing turns out it isn't um it's oh. kind of the italian equivalent of stevenage sorry if you live in stevenage and you've just been <laughs> offended by that but um but anyway I, I spent three nights in nicolino however on the outskirts of nicolino is stupinigi and stupinigi which you will see on the telly today if you watch the stage from the start features this um hunting lodge uh that was built in the early 18th century by um it's called the palazzo di caccia the, the literally the hunting palace um uh by uh, it was commissioned by victor amadeus II, and it was the hunting lodge to the house of savoy and it is it is i mean hunting lodge doesn't Do it justice, David. It looks like the Palace of Versailles. It it its is mind-blowingly vast. It's absolutely incredible and um, really extraordinary. And it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's where they roll out from today. Um, It's flat. They head northeast um, towards where I am now, Novara, which is in the flattest part of Piedmont imaginable. Um, Novara is surrounded by paddy fields, Um, This is. There's a lot of rice grown in in this part Hmm. of uh, Piedmont, and the local speciality here is uh, panicia, which is a risotto made with lard and uh, and uh, various different vegetables. It's also the centre of the gorgonzola production region of uh, Piedmont, and home all going from, and uh, yeah, and even better than that, home to um, Campari, the drink that was invented by Hmm. uh, Gaspare Campari in 1860. Um, Yeah,
0: lived a good life.
1: Yeah. But after 30, I'm quite excited by that it goes through a little town called, uh, Racconigi after 30 kilometers, which has a royal castle in it, which was the birthplace of the last ever king of Italy, Umberto the second of, um, he was born in 1904 and he reigned. I didn't know this little bit of history. He reigned from May the ninth to June the 18th in 1946. He is known as the May King. He was basically appointed by his father, who considered, uh, in a desperate bid to save the monarchy from um, absolution, basically. uh, From, what's the word? Being dissolved. Dissolution. Yeah, dissolution. Um, He thought that he was so unpopular that maybe his son would be slightly more popular. And this was all ahead of a referendum in 1946, uh, which they lost, Hmm. effectively. And Italy was then declared a republic. And uh, the royal family were now shorn of their constitutional rights. So the last ever king of Italy was Umberto II. And I was huh. thinking of him when you were talking about. I think yesterday, or the day before, you were talking about the Pope forgiving yes. his assassin. Yes, yes. Umberto attempted. II was. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, so clearly attempted. <laughs> I mean, the Pope could. Yeah, he could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Umberto II was the the, uh, victim of an attempted assassination in Brussels as well by a communist uh, who he then later forgave. So there was a little parallel there. um, There you go, that's nice. That's a lovely way to finish. And it's our first head-to-head with Dylan Grunewagen and uh, Caleb Ewan, Peter Sagan, and the rest of them today. And it will be very sprinty. And that's that's kind of that, David. Yeah. Well, I'll speak to you tomorrow morning, Ned. I felt the energy levels dipped a little bit today. What did
0: you think? I don't, I don't know. I felt, I felt quite infuse.
1: Oh, it's quite chill.
0: It's quite chill. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, it's just stage one, two, yeah. stage one. Stage. Actually, that's what we've got. To, so do we then call this stage one? No, we could... No, I've just been trying to explain to you. Yesterday wasn't a... Pro- I know you've done the whole beautiful thing about a prologue. Oh, no, right. It wasn't, okay, so, pro- it wasn't so, a prologue. No but, um, no, but I mean, I know it was stage one yesterday. So what do we call this show then? Stage one. Oh, this one. Show? It's Stage two? Yeah. Well, that's going to confuse people, because we just talked about stage one, though. Well, I know. Well,
1: well... <laughs> Oh no! But we had the concept. <laughs> See, we, we, yeah, I know. But maybe we need to talk. Well, I enjoyed you stage talking about review. stage one. But I think, yeah, but I think it's stage. Tw- I think it's stage. Tw- I think we should call it the stage two show because it's the day of stage two, isn't it? But it's got okay. a bit of stage one in it because it's quite hard to talk about. So you've taught me this in the past. Quite hard to talk about things that haven't
0: happened yet. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's the old uh, famous so, Danish proverb.
1: Yeah, so so I thought you were quite close to making a prediction of your own just now. I thought you were going to make a prediction what, about Remco. About the sprint? No, oh, no, Remco. no about Remco. The, the, the same prediction that you made on, my, on WhatsApp last night to me, I thought you were actually going to commit that to the airwaves.
0: But you're I, I, you, you full think No. Well, I, yeah, huh? I'm yeah. going to keep quiet on it until it's proven, because I don't okay. want to predict the future. It's very difficult. Yeah. The only thing we know for sure yeah. is that Marc Soler... Is not going to win the jury. So that's, 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 that's,
1: that's the only thing we know for sure.
0: We yeah. Pack up and go home, Mark. We'll pack <laughs> it's, just, it's just ridiculous that you're even here.
1: All <laughs> oh, well, right, oh, David. Um, hopefully, so, yeah. uh, hopefully, that, uh, hopefully that there's not so much heavy breathing on my microphone today. So yeah,
0: um, and, uh, hissing, uh, and hissing on mine. Let's Technical problems, but
1: we're getting there. And thank that's you for sorry. listening. And um, yeah, see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Bye.